today on Ag News Daily. They don't have good weather this winter. Then our fight for battle for acres is going to continue all the way until March. And we could see just a huge, huge, huge rally to come. So it's all dependent on Mother Nature. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Hello joined by Ashton Carr today. Ashton, how was your weekend? My weekend was really nice. I discovered this place in Lubbock that has chocolate martinis, which are Ooh. really tasty. I went there Friday night and one of my friends ended up being the live entertainment. He was playing there. So I had a fun Friday and then really just spent the rest of the weekend relaxing, catching up on some schoolwork, not doing a whole lot. But today I worked out for the first time in like a week and a half because I had strep and then just didn't feel like going to the gym there for a while. And it kicked my butt to say the least. So I've got a little bit of a post-workout headache going today. Oh, well, you need some water, Ashton. No martinis for you. No martinis for me today. I need to stay away from that. I think I had maybe a little bit too many of them on Friday night. (laughs) Mm, Well, that's bad if it carries all the way over into Monday. Oh, no, no. I definitely wasn't, you know, hungover or anything. I think my workout this morning just really kicked my butt. So, well, that's good. It's good to have those. Uh, What did I do this weekend? I can't even remember. I don't think I did anything exciting. Oh, yesterday I went to the casino. <laughs> See, are you hurting today as well, Delaney? No, I do. I don't. Yeah, no, I don't usually drink when I go to the casino. I just like to play the games. I played some roulette yesterday and took home some money. So that's good. Do you are you a casino goer? Sort of, kind of. We don't have them in Texas, but you don't have any casinos. No, I don't think so. Not that I can put my finger on it really. Um, but I used to live really close, you know, back home where my parents live, we're really close to the Oklahoma border and they have Mm -hmm. casinos in Oklahoma. So that was the thing when me and my friends all freshly turned 18, we would go across the border and go to play in Oklahoma, but I've probably actually played like one or two times. So not really a big casino person. Okay, well, that's totally fair. That's funny. I didn't realize Texas wasn't a casino state. Yeah, I want to say they have some in New Mexico and Louisiana. So all the states around us, but Texas doesn't have any. Hmm, Interesting. Well, all right, then. Oh, here's a good piece of Texas news for you, Ashton. There is an iconic ranch in northern Texas, the Panhandle area. That is for sale for the first time in 120 years. It's called the Turkey Track Ranch. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. I didn't. I wasn't expecting this. Okay. Well, it's it's some fun news for today. This ranch, which, like I mentioned, 120 years, it's been in the same possession, same owner. It includes 80,000 acres under one fence. It boasts 26 miles of Canadian river frontage, seven creeks and multiple reservoirs, springs and lakes, and is home to grasslands, scenic mesas, and two historic battle sites, apparently, as well. This 80,000-acre farm is on sale for just $200 million, Ashton. That is a lot of change. I, it is a lot of change. I just looked up the ranch and it is 
looks like it's in the Amarillo Canyon area, which is about an hour and a half, two hours north of me. So I'm really surprised that I've never heard of this. But to be fair, there's a ton of ranches around here. The I think it's the four sixes just sold. And that's where they're going to be filming some Yellowstone episodes, Delaney. So you're going to be looking out for that. So that's what I thought you were going to be talking about. Not Turkey Track. I've never heard. No, but now. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Because, like, I have a hard time. I've been to Texas multiple times. I just have a really hard time grasping with how big it is. And the fact that there is a farm that has 80,000 acres on it is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, when I have... I've been looking at a few states and stuff, just trying to, you know, see where my next move is. And I think you and I were talking the other day about how Iowa takes, like, four or five hours to get across the entire state, something like that, from you know, north to south, east to west, either way you go, it takes like 12 hours to get across the state. Wow. Of so that's a lot. Yeah. Huge. You could literally never leave the state of Texas and probably still see new things all the time. Oh, absolutely. There's just an array of things to take in and I haven't even taken in all of it and I've been here my entire life. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, that's my fun piece of news for today. Actually, I lied. I have one other fun piece of news because it is pumpkin season and this coming weekend is Halloween. Ashton, do you carve pumpkins? I haven't carved a pumpkin since I was a kid. Well, I attempted to carve one last year and the year before. Maybe it was two years ago now. I can't remember because I always think like, oh, that's such a fun activity. We could do it with our nieces and nephews. Wrong. Pumpkin carving is really hard because they always give you like those little tools you buy. They almost look like a little lock and pick kind of like a file almost like they're tiny. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to carve through a pumpkin with those. Then you get out a knife and then it's dangerous. So the little kids can't do it. So I ended up doing we ended up doing all the work when we had our nephews over last year to do it. But according to the National Retail Federation, 44% of all Americans say they plan to carve a pumpkin as their Halloween festivities this year. And I thought this was fun. An article I was reading today just gave us some quick pumpkin production facts. The top pumpkin producing state is, of course, Illinois. We've had on an Illinois pumpkin producer before on the podcast. But there are quite a few other states that rank in the top 10, and Texas is in the top 10, Ashton, for number of pumpkin acres in the United States. Did you know that? I didn't know that we broke the top 10, but I know a couple of different cities around Texas are pretty key growing areas for pumpkins, so I'm not too surprised. Well, I thought that was interesting. And I think last year, maybe it was two years ago, we had kind of a quote-unquote pumpkin shortage. I remember folks saying, oh, you need to stock up on your pumpkin products at the grocery store this year. So that uh, does sound like it is continuing here into 2021, because if you are one of the millions of Americans who celebrate Halloween, uh, your search for the perfect pumpkin might be a little more challenging this year because more festive orange gourds haven't been immune from this year's widespread supply chain challenges. And pumpkins may be one thing that aren't going to be quite as readily available this Halloween season. There's a place here called Food King, and they always have a ton of pumpkins for sale, like different colors and 
shapes, sizes, whatever. And me and one of my friends um, thought it was really funny to get the ugliest pumpkin that we can find, the biggest, ugliest (laughs) green pumpkin we could find. And we went and left it on one of our other friend's porches. We like ding dong ditched her and, and left it there. And we carried over the tradition this year and it just makes me giggle. So that's one of our Halloween traditions, but not so much pumpkin carving, more like pumpkin buying and leaving at your front door. That's that's our tradition. But Delaney, I guess we're just both really chatty today. So I'm going to go ahead and move on here and talk about some news. Of course, we have been talking a ton about input costs and the availability of products, but it looks like going into next year, we won't see too much of a problem with Enlist products because Enlist products use 24D co-line and those products are made right here in the U.S. They are manufactured in Michigan and formulated in Webster City, Iowa. And so... Corteva has come out and said that they don't anticipate any shortages of Enlist herbicide for 2022 because they are not dependent on foreign supplies or anything since they use that 240 co-line. So there's some good news for you this morning, Delaney, or this afternoon. It is this afternoon, Ashton, although it does feel kind of like a morning, so I feel you there. Um, As we're continuing to follow the John Deere strike. I actually saw this article this morning and I hadn't realized it, but there are other folks that are striking as well. As we know, we're still, we're a week into this thing roughly and still about 10,000 John Deere workers are on strike. But since October 5th, about 1400 Kellogg workers have been on strike in Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. And they are still on strike because apparently talks are at a standstill between Kellogg and the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and Grain Millers International Union. That's their union there. Uh, Kellogg has apparently been posting production positions for their plants and trying to hire. I, from what it sounds like in this article, at least hire those positions out from underneath the people while they are striking. So, you know, we kind of discussed that last week, like, can you get fired for striking? Well, I don't know that you can get fired, but apparently you can get replaced. And so it sounds like they're, yeah, I don't know quite what to make of it all. According to uh, the president of BCTGM, which is a local union in Omaha, he said, Dan Osborne said that They weren't willing to talk about moving off of their proposals, which is why we didn't spend any time at the table. And apparently there are about 480 workers alone striking in Omaha at a Kellogg's facility. So this labor issue is happening in a lot of places, Ashton. You know, you talk about the number of places hiring right now. Everywhere is hiring and people are willing to pay a lot of money. And those companies, it sounds like that aren't willing to be very flexible, are losing workers. And in this instance, are having workers on strike. So it's interesting to see how this is kind of changing the labor market. Well, Delaney, I'm also wondering if we could be seeing a staff shortage slash maybe a strike going on in the FSA offices. Back in September, President Biden put in an executive order saying that all federal employees had to have their COVID-19 vaccine, and it's not stopping when it comes to FSA employees. And 
That includes the FSA field staff, which has about 6,700 FSA employees working in counties across the country. And the majority of these employees happen to also be farmers or ranchers. And they are also going to be required to get their COVID-19 vaccine. And there was a request last week made by the National Association of FSA County Office Employees that they get to choose whether or not they do regular testing instead of a mandatory vaccine. And the USDA has denied this exemption request. So they're talking about staff shortages. And I'm wondering if people will just straight up quit, if they will go on strike or what's going to happen. U.S. Ag Secretary Vilsack said that there's about a shortage. I think the number that I read was about 3,000 employees working in the USDA right now. So they're they're lacking 3,000 employees. So they're already facing a shortage. And this just looks like it's going to cause even more of a pain. Nash and I would assume that some of those employees that they're losing or could potentially use lose because of the mandate are local FSA offices, folks that are working, quote unquote, out in the field, people collecting data for the USDA. Those people as well, it sounds like, could theoretically probably part ways with the organization. Yeah. And it it's really sad to me that it kind of has to come to this. I don't see an issue personally on just doing regular testing and having a mandatory vaccine. Seems a little strange to me, but I'm wondering if we'll see something come from the USDA if these numbers keep going down and they see more of a staffing shortage because you can't have, you know, people going out and collecting this data that don't, I like, we, we've been talking, like you just said about how, you know, John Deere was having people working in the offices go down and working in the manufacturing factories. But I just, I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss of words if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think we all are. Nobody could forecast that we'd be in this situation. But speaking of forecasts, Ashton, the La Nina weather pattern is continuing to develop here. And Sounds like the latest public and private forecasts for the next 30 to 90 days gives us kind of our first look here at the winter season. And we've chatted with Eric Snodgrass, of course, about this previously on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. But this La Nina pattern is putting developing drought conditions for the entire Southern Plains region of the United States during this La Nina pattern. And so... As we kind of talk about winter wheat production, a lot of this area is about one third of it is put in a potential drought concern down there in your neck of the woods, Ashton. So it's in full effect here. Of course, 30 to 90 days when you get out to 90 days, how accurate is it truly? Is it a question mark there? Even 30 days out, there's a lot of question marks around weather forecasts, but that is what the latest weather expectations are for this growing season, at least short term. Well, Delaney, I am really all out of news for today. Not a whole lot of exciting things going on that I saw. So do you have anything else to talk about before we get into markets? I think I am good for today, Ashton. Let's go ahead and chat markets. And it looks like for the most part today, grains were pretty positive as we're going to chat with Naomi about here in just a little bit. We got a lot of rain this weekend and a big swath of the Corn Belt here, you know, here in our neck of the woods, we got about four inches. Other folks I saw on Twitter today, one inch, two inches, five inches, eight inches. So everywhere got 
a pretty good chunk of rain, which put a little breath in the markets for today as they're uh, waiting to continue to see what comes out of those fields. December corn contract today, however, unchanged on the day to close at 538. The March as well, also unchanged to close at 546 and three quarters. Soybeans really put on some gains today as the November contract added 16 and three quarters cents to close at 1237 and a quarter. The January up 16 and a quarter cent, closing the day out at 1247. Wheat today continuing to chug right along as the Chicago December contract added three and a half cents, closing the day out at seven fifty nine and a half. KC hard red winter wheat up three and three quarters, closing the day at seven seventy six and three quarters. We saw some big moves today in the protein markets as the December live cattle contract added a dollar twenty, closing the day at one twenty nine fifty two and a half. February up a dollar twenty five. Ending the day at 134.75 in reaction to last week's cattle on feed report. In feeder cattle, that movement to the upside continued as the November contract added a dollar fifty-seven and a half, closing at one fifty-eight forty-seven and a half. The January up a dollar twenty-five, closing the day out at one fifty-eight fifty-seven and a half. And in lean hogs, when you go out a little bit further out into the deferreds, we're seeing a little bit of weakness, but in the meantime, front month contracts finished stronger today. December lean hogs up 87.5 cents, closing at 74.20. The February closing the day out at 76.77.5, up 15 cents on the day. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the Class 3 dairy milk future is really the only market to pull back substantially today as the November Class 3 contract down 27 cents. Closing at 1934, the beast shed 34 cents, closing at 1909. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Naomi Blue. Well, folks, as promised, we are chatting with Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing. I almost said Stuart Peterson, Naomi. We have to forgive me. That's all right. It's all right. That uh, name change is uh, still a little bit tricky to get figured out. But yep, you got it right. Total Farm Marketing by Stuart Peterson. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, it's been a little while since we've had you on the podcast. So we appreciate you hopping back on with us. We are now in full swing today, or really now for harvest. What are you hearing from some of your clients? Are they thinking record yields? So for the soybean crop, we are hearing really fantastic yields pretty much throughout the Midwest. So most producers are telling us it's um, right on their APH or higher. Some folks are saying it is um, record for some portions of their field. So a really good crop out there. I think today the market got a little bit concerned because of the huge amounts of rain that Illinois received over the weekend and heading into Indiana. So like some places received anywhere from four to eight inches of rain. So that um, is going to delay harvest here for a while. And then there's concern about how much crop is left standing in the field. Is it going to hurt the remaining pods that are out there in some capacity. So that's why the bean market was supported today. And then as far as corn yields, what we're hearing it's all over the place. It is definitely not a record crop. And um, I wouldn't even call it above average for a lot of places, of course, because it was so hot and dry during July. Yeah. You know, you talk about that rain, even here where we're at in central Iowa, we got the neighbor told us like four inches. So it just felt like it rained all day yesterday into the evening and definitely has pushed us out of the fields for a couple of days at least. But Naomi, I was chatting with my father-in-law, future father 
brother-in-law yesterday about harvest. And, you know, I think this is a good question I wanted to pose to you, but this year really we didn't have, aside from maybe some drought areas, we really didn't have any bad weather issues like the derecho we had in 2020 or any sort of hail, you know, there wasn't a widespread damage or widespread issues. However, when you look at the weekly harvest report, I feel like we're not pushing the envelope very quickly here as far as getting this crop out for it being such a, you know, substantially normal crop. What's your take there? Um, I think it's a combination of things where some of the mornings have been uh, really foggy and dewy. And so farmers were not able to start harvest in the morning. They had to wait until the fog burned off and then it dried out in the afternoon. So that was just a delay. Another thing I'm hearing very consistently is the breakdowns that are occurring for farmers. And of course, breakdowns happen every year, but now when it's hard to get parts, when it's hard to get labor to come out to fix the machinery, when the machinery is having to do a big computer upgrade and then the new parts and the old parts don't talk to each other and they're not compatible, there's just a lot of delay this year of small things behind the scenes where um, it's not allowing us to have a fast harvest, like exactly like you said, like you would have thought. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have even, I mean, we've talked about the John Deere strike for, you know, over a week now, but that's I, something I wouldn't have thought about how that's impacting harvest this year. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, it's, it is. I think when I'm talking to my clients, every other conversation um, is some grumbling about um, parts breaking down and just the trickiness to get the parts. So it is definitely happening for um, a lot of producers all over the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. Naomi, I want to chat soybeans here. Like you mentioned, we saw some positive movement today, felt a little of that pressure taken off the table, but we're still in the middle of harvest. So it's normal to have these harvest pressures. At what point do you think we see that taken off the table? You know, I would think um, once we can get that harvest wrapped up to about 85% complete, then we'll see the harvest pressure done. What we have been seeing is really actually fantastic export sales overall, Um, you know, just a little bit behind where we should be on a five-year average, but they're not bad. We're about 50% of the goal for where the USDA has us. Um, Our export inspections for what's actually been leaving the country last week was phenomenal. This week scaled back a little bit, but the product is there. It's moving. So the demand is there. Uh, The harvest pressure, I think, is going to be wrapping up. And trade is starting to think about the next USDA report in November. And I think what's hanging over this market is more the expectation that the USDA is likely going to raise yield on the November report. So we're all expecting ending stocks for soybeans to get, again, just a little bit larger, which keeps that market pressured for prices. And of course, the other big thing that soybeans continue to deal with is the idea that they're going to see a lot more acres in the spring. So when, you know, a year ago, the soybeans were the big leader in this whole marketplace, but now they're the third the third place follower. Wheat's in first place, corn's still in second, and now soybeans are in last place. So wheat's in first place, which I think has been really interesting to watch, especially Minneapolis spring wheat. You know, we just saw little different tracks here, but we were talking just before we hopped on with you today about, you know, this potential La Nina pattern that's developing in the Southern Plains, which of course is a pretty big area for wheat production. Mm -hmm. Naomi, I've got to ask, you know, if we do see 
another area of drought or another area that the wheat complex struggles with, how high are we going to head here? (laughs) You know, ironic, I was just working on a PowerPoint presentation on exactly this topic. So for the wheat, it's, it's spring wheat, it's the winter wheat, it's the Chicago wheat. Each individual wheat complex has tight ending stocks, tight supplies, and we've seen spring wheat fight for acres. You know, we're expecting that there's going to be more winter wheat acres. But just like you said, there can be more acres. But if we don't have the proper precipitation, that doesn't mean we're going to have a, a crop to fix the tight ending stock situation. So the wheat market, now that the spring wheat is over $10, that was a huge hurdle to get through. But now technically the upside objective is $11 futures. And it could potentially get there on this fight for acres because the North Dakota folks, you know, they have their choice. Do they want to plant spring wheat or oats or barley or corn or soybeans or canola or sunflowers? So in the Northern Plains, there is that fight for acres happening. And with the wheat in general, you know, it, it was enough of a situation this year where enough countries around the world had a production issue where it also um, draw down the global supplies. So we need to have not only the United States crop become larger, we need to make sure that Russia has a good crop, Ukraine has a good crop, and Europe has a good crop. Uh, there's just been production issues in all sorts of corners of the earth. I want to talk about that a little bit more because we've seen a ton of rain going on in China, and that's, of course, affecting their pace for planting of winter wheat. I think I read earlier that they're going at about 26% right now completed compared to a normal 53% pace. So how is their crop going to kind of come into play there? Well, that's a great question. And what we've already seen is China buying a lot of wheat and they've been buying Australian wheat. So I think that they've been deficit somewhat and now they're at the point where they're realizing it's already not set to be a perfect big crop. So of course, we never know for sure what's happening in China, but when you kind of watch where their patterns are going, um, instead of buying more corn, they had been recently buying some more wheat. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the production issues that they've had because of all of the rain between too much rain for the corn and now too much rain for the wheat. Um, there, the wheat market, <laughs> it's one of those things where wheat can re- lead just those really, really, really big rallies. And wheat has not had a friendly story for what, six, seven years. And so now with wheat as the leader in this complex, because the whole world needs wheat, um, there's a lot of potential for this market if the weather doesn't cooperate over the next six months. Naomi, you mentioned earlier that we're going to start to see an acreage battle with, you know, the Northern Plains, Southern Plains for what type of wheat planted. But we're also going to see an acreage battle here with all commodities, corn, soybeans and wheat alone, because I think a lot of producers are trying to forecast ahead, you know, with machinery and with supply chain issues and more importantly, with these crazy fertilizer costs that we are having. What do you advise producers to do right now? And Second part of that is what kind of acreage battle do you think we have ensuing for 2022? Yeah, for producers, if they're if they have been able to lock in those input costs, you know, we're starting to see some attractive prices for the D22 corn, but we're also seeing the December 22 corn recognizing that out all producers have locked in input prices so that D22 price continues to trend higher where the nearby prices have just been holding sideways. 
So a lot of producers are trying to figure out, okay, do I scramble? Do I do what I can do to secure my fertilizer now? Or do I wait and hope that the supply is available in the spring? But then, of course, you're gambling on what kind of weather you're going to have in spring to know if you can apply things. So I think this is one of the hardest things that a producer has to figure out. I don't know what the right answer would be. We're not really expecting fertilizer prices to come down for a while just because there's not the availability at the moment. And from what we've been hearing, the availability may not come until it's too late. So it's a story to continue to develop. As far as acreage battle goes, you know, you have to add cotton into the mix down in the southern states. And there is, um, again, there's a lot of potential. So here would be like my best thought on how things are going to go here, that prices just kind of grind higher as we head throughout the rest of 2021. Uh, slow gains with for prices because demand has been strong, supplies are low. And then I think that the crescendo comes to a point where prices peak potentially in June if South America has good weather. Because if South America has good weather, then the acreage battle doesn't need to be fought as hard because there'll be a perception that there's more wheat from South America, there's more soybeans from South America. Now, however, if La Nina goes down in the pattern that it's supposed to be happening and South America has the potential heat and drought coming, and if they don't have good weather this winter, then our fight for battle for acres is going to continue all the way until March. And we could see a, just a huge, huge, huge rally to come. So it's all dependent on Mother Nature. It is definitely, I'm so glad you brought up pointing in about fertilizer. I've heard that if we can't get the proper fertilizer on these crops, we're going to lose 20% of production right off the get-go. Mm. Wow. So um, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. And it's hard, you know, from a producer standpoint, you know, you're like, okay, I see value in front of me. Do I lock it in? But how much do you mm -hmm. lock in? If you can't get the fertilizer, you don't know how much of a crop you're going to grow. So I think, you know, every year with marketing, it feels like it's getting harder and harder and harder. And this year is going to be no exception to that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned locking in, you know, your profit for next year, because that was the other quick follow-up I wanted to ask you with corn, soybeans, and wheat, all three of them, especially corn, since that is so heavily reliant on fertilizer. You know, I've been watching all these Twitter posts and Facebook groups that are talking about whether or not they should be locking in 2022 production because they know their break-even is going to be higher this year, regardless of what fertilizer prices end up at, just on the sole fact that it is probably going to be substantially higher. So their break-even is kind of a question mark, yet as you look into yeah. next year's prices, they mm -hmm. are trading at a pretty profitable level. Do folks go ahead and lock some of that in now? And if so, how much? Well, I would say, I mean, if only if you really are confident with where your inputs are and if you're lacking in a profit and you're comfortable with things, you know, maybe 10 at most 20%, the market right now still looks like there's upside potential. So when there looks like there's upside potential, let the market run. One other thing with the energy prices, crude oil is doing one heck of a job staying above $80 a barrel. And the more it does this, the more likely it looks like that's going to go towards $100 a barrel. And when crude oil prices are up, when energy prices are up, there's always that strong correlation that the grain markets follow, especially with ethanol being profitable. So I would say start locking some things in because you're starting your sales better than you were a year ago. But at the same time, I don't know that I would get gung-ho about it because the new crops are really trying to say there might be more potential yet for higher prices. 
So I have a little bit of a two-parter today. We saw triple-digit gains in both live cattle and feeder cattle today. So what's going on there on, on both sides? Yeah, so with uh, live cattle, we had, and feeders, we had a friendly cattle on feed report on Friday. So the on feed number came in at 99% of a year ago. That was a little bit lower than the average num- estimate. The marketing's number came in at 97%, which was also slightly below the average estimate. And then um, the placement number also was supportive, uh, coming in at 97%. And they were thinking it'd be more like 101%. So what that's saying is that there's lower amounts of cattle coming down the pipeline. Therefore, the value for feeder cattle is strong because we're thinking there's going to be higher prices potentially to come. Demand has been strong. We have the cash market that just kind of doesn't do much of anything, but export sales are phenomenal. You know, they are the highest ever overall when you look at the overall value. Domestic demand for beef is strong. There is, you know, not a substitute for beef and you know, the argument starts to come up, well, with high energy prices and higher prices at the store, you know, beef prices are so expensive, the consumer's not going to buy beef, to which I say wrong, they will buy beef. And I was wrong about that for, um, well, a few years back, like in 2014, we had $100 barrel crude oil, we had cattle prices up near 150. And I said, there's no way the consumer is going to be able to afford this. And and they did, they kept buying beef. Um because there's no substitute for it. Instead of maybe like putting extra hamburger and the spaghetti, you know, maybe scale back a little bit, but the butchers were smart and they made the the cuts of steak thinner. So that was um, a way that they could keep it a little bit more in a, in a better price range for the consumer to buy. So I'm still friendly to cattle. I think the deferred cattle have a friendly story. I think domestic demand is there. And I think the export demand is going to stay strong too. The dollar has been, you know, kind of, hanging out between 90 and 95. So as long as the dollar doesn't go too much higher, it keeps us competitively competitively priced globally. So that helps the export demand picture as well. Naomi, I wanted to ask you your quick thoughts here on the dairy market before we wrap up today, because I know that October isn't really volume trade, but there is a big spread right now between even October, November, almost $2 in the class three dairy futures. What's going on with that spread? And what can we expect to have happen here as that month expires? Yeah, good question. Um, So October is uh, the volume is just drying up. A lot of focus now already shifting on November. I think the November is going to stay valued pretty well. Uh, We're at 1934 at the moment. It's scaled back today um, from the earlier high. But here's the friendly stuff that's going on for the dairy complex. Last week, we had a global dairy trade auction and the index was up over 2%. And that's the highest it was in seven auctions. So it was demand for cheddar, butter, and skim milk powder. So that says that overall dairy product is in demand, U.S. dairy product is in demand. Part two of what happened last week, the USDA had a milk production report and it showed September data. And the data showed that milk production was up only 0.2% from a year ago. And so when you look at what milk production was back in May, we had 4% increase from the year ago, and we've just been trending lower on how much production we've had. So we're seeing less production uh, from from the dairy states overall. 
We're seeing strong export demand. We're seeing strong cheese demand. And so um, it's a market that's going to, I think, overall stay at a higher value. And it should. I mean, the the dairy complex, um, we've got that just that strong demand. And I expect that to continue, especially as we're heading into the holiday season here. That just keeps the dairy market stronger, too, overall. Fantastic. Well, Naomi, as you mentioned earlier, marketing is getting ever more difficult, especially as we have a lot of variables changing year in and year out. Folks want to get connected with you and have them help you with their marketing plan. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, feel free to give me a call at 800-334-9779 or shoot me an email. It's naomi at totalfarmmarketing.com. Fantastic. Naomi, thanks again for joining us today. I look forward to chatting with you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again there to Naomi for coming on and chatting markets with us. I am learning more and more, Delaney, and I'm very proud of that, that I can actually hold my own in our market conversations nowadays. So people are just going to have to keep tuning in to see what kind of questions I come up with next. Yeah, you're doing a great job learning the markets, Ashton. I appreciate that. It's definitely a little bit of a struggle, but I'm hoping that we both do a good job on our Market Monday episodes. And we're going to continue to have these each and every Monday. So folks can tune in at agnewsdaily.com to keep in tune with what's going on in the markets. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.